0: New York federal prosecutors are making a comeback in their fight against insider trading. Not only will the former portfolio manager convicted in the most lucrative insider trading case ever have to serve out the rest of his nine-year sentence, but the Manhattan Federal Appellate Court has lowered the bar for convictions for insider trading. Former SAC Capital Advisors Portfolio Manager Matthew Martoma lost a bid to overturn his insider trading conviction for using illegal tips to make $275 million dollars for SAC. By a two-to-one vote, the Second Circuit widened the category of people who can potentially be prosecuted for insider trading. More than a dozen insider trading cases fell apart in the wake of a 2014 decision by the same court. So where does the law stand now? Here to discuss that are two experts in this area of the law, John Coffey, a professor at Columbia Law School, and Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell University Law School. John, the question of what has to be proven in an insider trading case has gone All the way up to the Supreme Court So take us on a short journey To explain where it stands
1: Fair enough And it really does change the law significantly to favor the prosecution. Prior to this case, the Supreme Court, both in its Dirks decision back in 1983 and in the Salmon decision that it handed down last year, both emphasized that the prosecution had to prove not simply that the defendant used material and non-public information to trade, but that the tipper had received some personal benefit from the tippee. In other words, that was distinguishing between mere gossip and a kind of predatory theft where you bribed an insider to get the information from the company. They recognized also both those decisions that there could be a special exception, a gift by an insider to his relatives or close friends. Uh, That seemed like a small case. What's now happened is that even after dirksen Solomon, the Martoma decision handed down yesterday says that any time information is given to anyone who is likely to trade based on it, that you expect will trade based on it, that will be treated as a gift. The prior case law, or at least the Newman decision in the Second Circuit, had said that it's only when you gave information to someone with whom you had a meaningful, close relationship. That's gone. now. Now, it can be a casual acquaintance, it can be anyone that you know if you have a reason to believe they're likely to trade on this information. So we will have the prosecution using a totally different theory, never having to prove a personal benefit, but just saying this was a gift of information, and therefore they are liable.
0: Bob this, go ahead. Bob, tell us about Martoma's appeal.
2: Well, um, so the appeal is, is is essentially based on the change in the law that John just mentioned, right? So, at the time that the original conviction uh, was, was won, the jury was instructed, right, to make its decision on the basis of the law as it then stood. So, what we have now is the defendant arguing that, well, you know, the law has actually changed during the course of his appeal from the earlier decision, and that therefore, since the law has changed during the course of that appeal, there should be a new trial with a new jury that will be instructed pursuant to the dictates of the new law.
0: John, the majority opinion noted that it was rare to take issue with a precedent set by another panel in its circuit, but that it was necessary because of the Supreme Court's ruling in Salmon. Does this totally undercut the prior Newman decision?
1: I don't think there's anything really left to Newman after this result. In theory, there's still going to be a personal benefit that you have to show in cases where there's not been a gift, but the prosecution can always see we characterize this as a gift and have a much simpler burden of proof. It is hard to show that the tippy gave something of value or knew that someone earlier in the chain of tips gave something of value to the tipper. That requirement is now gone. But at the same time, we're no longer distinguishing casual gossip from a kind of predatory bribe paid to get information from the company. So it is a significant change in the scope of the criminal law. And for those who fear over criminalization, this is going to be of concern to them.
0: Bob, Judge Rosemary Pooler dissented. What was her (laughs) reasoning Well, she had a couple of reasons
2: uh, that that she gave, but the one that she seems to have laid most emphasis on was precisely this change in standard that Jack has emphasized. Right? So she says that, look, all right, given that a gift is enough, and given that the sort of conceptual boundaries, you might say, of the idea of a gift are fairly porous, fairly open-ended. In other words, given the fact that many things can be characterized as gifts— more or less plausibly we're likely to have a rather significant widening or opening up of the door uh, to potential liability. She thinks, in other words, that there is now a very significant danger of overcriminalization, as Jack put it. now of course, if you don't worry about overcriminalization, but in the wake of the crisis, say you worry about under criminalization or under enforcement or, you know, sort of insufficient incentives to dissuade people from engaging in chicanery in the financial markets, then, of course, you're likely to applaud the decision. But Judge Poole obviously uh, thinks the other way.
0: Bob, how much easier does this decision actually make it for prosecutors to get insider trading convictions? And will it lead to over-criminalization?
2: Yeah. So as as Jack suggested earlier, it makes it a good bit easier for the prosecutor. And that could lead, of course, to a great deal more effective criminalization than there's been. Whether that will amount to over-criminalization, of course, uh, is up for debate, right? From one point of view, you might say, well, look, it's about time that we uh, dealt with what has been perhaps arguably an under-criminalization problem uh, in the lead up to the recent uh, financial crisis, of course, and in the aftermath. Uh, On the other hand, there is a danger of rendering uh, the securities markets a bit uh, too frightening, you might say, to the unwary if it looks like it's too easy to get your in trouble uh, for trading on some bit of information that you've acquired. So it's always a balance, a question of balancing. I think that probably uh, the balance of late has been on the side of uh, that there's been a bit of sort of under criminalization, you might say. And so it's probably a good thing uh, that we're uh, widening the gates just a little bit. Um, But whether it'll go too far is another question. We'll have to kind of keep our eyes peeled for future uh, cases and future decisions, of course.
0: Jack, the Newman decision broke former U.S. attorney Attorney Preet Bharara's more than 80 case winning streak and led to more than a dozen insider trading cases falling apart. Uh, Bharara crowed a little in a tweet saying, "Quote: Unlike Newman, the Martoma decision comports with long-standing law and common sense." Do you agree with him?
1: Well, I understand why he says that, and I probably. Uh, agree more than I disagree. I wrote a op-ed piece in the New York Times last year uh, suggesting that Congress should repeal the personal benefit requirement, that it was too high a barrier. Uh, The courts instead have done it a different way. I never contemplated that they would take the gift exception and use it to totally swallow up everything else, but in effect it's a major change. My one concern is not so much over-criminalization versus under-criminalization, but the fact that all of this is being decided by courts, by three judges in the original decision, Newman, and three judges now in Martoma. And the whole body of law on insider trading for the last 50 or 60 years has never been addressed by Congress. Congress just gets paralyzed on close questions, doesn't want to touch this. But ultimately, the criminal law is the area of law where we most expect the legislature to set the community standards. And it's somewhat strange that judges can swing it one far to one side and then swing it back far to the other with just three judges deciding.
0: Speaking of three judges, Bob, is it likely that if Martoma asks the Second Circuit to rehear the case en banc, the entire circuit, that the circuit might grant that?
2: Yeah, so, so I think the Jack is a, a better authority than I on the probability there, but I can I, I, it, it's a def- what I can definitely say is that it's, a, it's a, a quite a distinct possibility, right? There are various grounds uh, that are usually given for a, 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 an appellate court to sort of rehear a case on on bond, uh, and one of them is a circumstance like the present one, uh, in which a three-judge panel significantly changes what has been thought to be sort of settled law within the circuit uh, in question. So there's certainly a ground for that. The other grounds, of course, are if the decision introduces a circuit split uh you know between say the second and other circuits, uh Jack would be well situated to sort of uh, discuss the nuances of uh, that possibility right. as well um, and uh but 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 again, one of the grounds uh is, is certainly present here at least in potential
0: all right, Jack, you're on the spot now. <laughs> well, I would tell you that
1: circuit courts disagree they have different practices in the second circuit it is no more than four or five percent of cases each year in which an en banc appeal is sought, in which it is granted. They don't typically give en banc appeals. But the odds will be stronger in this case. First of all, there was a strong and well-reasoned dissent written by Judge Pooler. Whether you agree or disagree, she told the world that she thought the other two judges were unjustifiably changing prior law. That's going to force... All of the other judges on the Second Circuit, which includes the judges who wrote the Newman decision, to read her dissent carefully. I should add that all three of these judges are quite respected. We're not talking about someone being an outlier here, they're all in the mainstream, and I think this has a better chance of getting en banc appeal than most other cases. What I do not expect, and this is probably going to be your next question, is that the Supreme Court will hear this, because the Supreme Court, after writing a decision, usually gives several years for the circuit courts to interpret this. I don't think the Supreme Court will turn again to insider trading until they find that there has developed a conflict between the circuits, and that will take some other circuit to disagree with this, the Martoma decision.
0: You know me too well, Jack. <laughs> uh- Am I too predictable? Well, here's an unpredictable question, and I don't know if you have an answer, Bob. You have 30 seconds, though. Uh, prosecutors reportedly offered Martoma a deal in exchange for his testimony against against Cohen. Are those deal negotiations ever reopened when it seems like the prison doors have been nailed shut and uh, you're stuck
2: well, I mean, occasionally they are, but but oftentimes they're not because, in effect, you're no longer behind the veil of ignorance, right? The, the the party knows what the stakes are now, and there's there's less of a gamble involved in making the decision. And usually when things are sort of settled in that way, when things are more or less predictable in that way, there's a little bit less likelihood of, of, of a settlement actually being um, – or anything being reopened uh, for, for settlement.
0: All right. I want to thank you both for being on Bloomberg Law. You make a great team That's John Coffey. He's a professor at Columbia Law School and Bob Hockett, a professor at Cornell Law School, both experts in this area of white collar crime.